How many of you love trials? You just love trials, huh? Probably not too many of us, but the Bible says that God finds His servants in the furnace of affliction. And uh, sometimes we don't like that fire that refines our life so that God can use us, but it's necessary. And if you're going through one of those times right now, just hang in there and God will get you through it and make you better as a result of it. So glad you're here tonight. I'll tell you what, we're getting every seat filled up here. Amen. By tomorrow night, we should, uh, we should have the goal accomplished. But uh, great job, and appreciate visitors from uh, here as well as other churches tonight. Honored to have you here. So glad you could join us. Well, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 tonight, the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 10. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And chapter 10. Pastor and Jimmy and Grant and I went out to knock some doors this morning. And after we uh, finished up, we went to Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And uh, I, think that's the, I think that's the Baptist Fellowship Hall or something uh, for most churches. But uh, I, I always enjoy being able to go to Chick-fil-A. Ours is a long ways from our house there in Lancaster. It's over in Palmdale. So I think I've been there maybe once, but uh, I enjoy Chick-fil-A. And today, I ordered the Cobb salad. Now, I, I love Chick-fil-A salads, I really do. And, and suppose that today, when uh, our order came to the table, and I took the uh, container that my salad was in, opened it up, and I was putting my dressing on my salad. And I noticed that right in the middle of my salad was a dead fly. Now, some of you are pretty tough. <laughs> you probably would have just <laughs> flicked it off and went and ate. But uh, I'm a little more sensitive than that. Uh, something about a dead fly and food just don't exactly go together. When you think about the history of flies and kind of their their process of becoming real. It's just not something that you associate with food. There's something about a fly and food that would turn away our appetite. Notice verse 1 here of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It says, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. God is always trying to do something great in our life. It may not always seem like it to us, but God is always working on us, even through the trials that we heard sung about a moment ago. God is always trying to refine us into something greater, something better for His use. So God is always working on us to create something good, but when God does that work, the devil's always trying to ruin it. Wherever God is working, you can count on the devil working as well. Jesus summed it up this way in John chapter 10. He said, the thief, referring to Satan, cometh but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. The motives couldn't be any more different. Jesus comes to give us life. He gives us uh, eternal life through salvation. He gives us abundant life in our Christian uh, journey. But Satan comes along and tries to ruin everything that God does. Interestingly, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, I fear lest by any means, 
As the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's interesting that Paul said, Satan by any means. See, the devil doesn't care how he ruins your life. He just wants to ruin it. With some, maybe he would use alcohol or drugs or immorality, but the devil is just as content to use pride or envy or worry or fear or gossip to ruin our life. The devil wants to ruin the good things that God is doing. And I believe in this passage, as Solomon writes these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us three very clear truths that are important for our life. First of all, I want you to notice the sacredness of the fragrance. Now look at verse 1 again. Dead flies cause the ointment. Now, if I asked you tonight to describe an ointment, I'm sure everybody could do that. An ointment is something that comes in a tube, uh, different than something in a bottle. We would think of an ointment as sort of a, a pasty substance rather than a liquid, right? Yeah. When you have a, maybe an abrasion or you have a rash or maybe a burn or something like that, you would take some ointment and you would put it on the skin and gently rub it in to try to bring some soothing or some healing. Most of us would be familiar with ointment. This word, however, in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word shemen. And it's an interesting word because it doesn't refer to a, a, a pasty substance as we would think, but rather it is referring to an olive-based oil. And this shemen, this olive-based oil, was used often in the Old Testament and always with something very sacred. For example, in the book of Genesis, chapter 28, verse 18, Jacob takes Shemin, this olive oil, and he places it on a sacrifice before offering it up unto the Lord. In uh, the book of uh, 1 Kings, chapter 9 and verse 6, and again in Exodus, chapter 25 and verse 6, it is this Shemin that was used to anoint a future king. You remember whenever God had designated someone to be the next king or the next prophet, he would send an existing prophet down to anoint them with oil, right? And it was this shemen that was used, this olive-based oil. And in those two instances, it was used to anoint a king. There are four times where it's used to anoint a prophet in Exodus 30, Leviticus 8, 1 Samuel 16 with David, and then in 1 Kings chapter 1. Interestingly, in Leviticus chapter 8, before they opened up the tabernacle for worship, they went around through that tabernacle, the priest did, and they anointed all of the furniture with this shemen. The Ark of the Covenant, the laver, the mercy seat, they put this olive-based oil on it as sort of a, a symbol of dedicating that unto the Lord. So whenever you see this word shemen, it's always used in a sacred sense. Now, the Bible says dead flies cause this shemen, this ointment of the apothecary. Now, there's another word we don't use a whole lot in normal conversation, apothecary. But again, most of us, I think, would, with a little thought, come up with what that's all about. An apothecary is like what we would call today a pharmacy, right? 
be a place where medicines are, are mixed together. If you go to the doctor, you're not feeling well, and he gives you an examination and he prescribes some medicine or uh, some medication, he would write a prescription out for you and tell you to take it to the pharmacy and pick up the, the medication you need. So you'd get the prescription, you'd go down to the Walmart or Walgreens, wherever you get your prescription drugs, you'd hand it to the pharmacist, he would read it, he's the only one that can read the doctor's handwriting, and he would say something like this, I'll have this in about 20 minutes. Well, why don't you just go get it? Well, he can't just go get it. He's got to mix those medicines. See, the doctor perhaps has prescribed several different things that you need to get through this particular illness. So the pharmacist's job is to go and get those medicines, mix them together, put them into a capsule form, place them in a bottle, put a label on it, and tell you to take one after every meal three times a day until they're gone, whatever the prescription prescribes. That's what was going on in apothecaries. There was a mixing of medicines, including this substance called shemen. It was the place where this olive-based oil was produced. It's interesting, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, those who worked in the apothecary were called perfumers. Now you say, Brother Gage, uh, what in the world does all this have to do with us at Royal View Baptist Church on a Tuesday night? I mean, shaman and apothecary, the, the Hebrew word for apothecary is the word rakwa. You say, what? I mean, what, why do I need to know this? The local church is like an apothecary. It's like the Hebrew word rakwa. It's a place where throughout the week, the pastor, the Sunday school teachers, the musicians, those who would serve on a Sunday service, throughout the week, they are preparing material for us. We call them sermons. We call them special music. We call them Sunday school lessons. But somebody, before we ever get there, is behind the scenes mixing truth together into sort of a capsule form, right? sort of putting it where we can kind of understand it in simple terms. Maybe there's a couple of points to the sermon or maybe three or four, but it's kind of in bite size. It's kind of like a vitamin. We can, we can, we can take it in very easily, understand it, and do what verse 1 says. We can go out the door after the service with a reputation of wisdom and honor. Right? In other words, we come in, we get fed, as we sometimes say, we get those nutrients that we need from the Word of God, whether it's through a song, whether it's through a lesson, whether it's through preaching, and we get those things, we put them into our life, we ingest them, and they change our life so that we can go out into the community and have a reputation of wisdom and honor. That's why a church has some standards. Now, Let's face it, humanly, nobody likes rules. But if you join a bowling league, they're going to tell you what to wear. You, you can't wear the shoes you have on right now. You've you got to have special shoes to go bowling. And you're probably going to have to wear a certain shirt to be on that bowling team in that league. Uh, you have rules at work. You have, you have rules in society. Uh, there are speed limits and so on. Everything has rules. Well, the church has some standards, has some rules. Why? Because we're supposed to go out with a reputation of wisdom and honor, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
So if we don't, if we don't have an understanding of what's right and what's wrong, well, we're certainly never going to be able to have a reputation of wisdom and honor. That's why in a church, preaching tends to dominate the service. Now, we enjoy fellowship. Some of you, you enjoy it for a good hour after the service. I mean, you, you just enjoy being around each other. and You enjoy uh, uh, fellowshipping one with another. You enjoy activities and such. But when you think about it, compared to everything else that we do in the church, preaching is central. Preaching is what seems to be the kind of the highlight of the service. Why? Because Christ is all wisdom. In other words, wisdom is found in Him. And if we're going to have wisdom and honor, we've got to learn about Christ. He's got to be the focal point. He's got to be preeminent in what we do. So the local church is really important in our life because there's a sacredness to church that helps us to live as God would have us live. But notice not only the sacredness of the fragrance, but notice secondly the stench of dead flies. Again, verse 1, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. Now the word folly is a word that is used especially in the book of Proverbs synonymously with the word sin. Folly and sin are often uh, co-equal in their meaning. In uh, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13, there was a young man named Amnon who raped his sister, his half-sister Tamar. In the midst of that terrible, wicked sin, Tamar says, do not thou this folly. Okay, well, I think rape is a sin. Rape is a pretty egregious sin. Rape is a horrible thing. And yet she uses the word folly to try to tell uh, uh, Amnon, don't do this. This folly ought not to be done in Israel. So the word folly and sin are akin. Now, he says that one dead fly in this sacred substance, can ruin it all. Now think about, God wants your life and my life to have a reputation of wisdom and honor in this community. And he's given us the local church to help accomplish that in our hearts and minds and lives. But one dead fly can ruin it all. If I looked at that salad today, it wouldn't take 20 dead flies in that salad for me to say, I don't think I'm hungry. Just one. In fact, if I could see it, just one wing of a dead fly (laughs) would probably be enough to say, you know, can I get something different? I'm just not really hungry for salad right now. You know, it doesn't take a lot of sin to ruin what God's doing in our life. We look at the big sins. We say, well, I, I, I'm not a murderer. I, 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 you know, I don't go around stealing things. I, I, I've never been to prison or anything like that. I mean, I'm not a bad sinner. Listen, there's no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. I wonder how many people's lives have been ruined by one sin. One little bit of bitterness that never got resolved. 
one friend, one internet site, one drink, one marijuana joint, one uh, word of gossip, one sin can destroy a lot of good. In fact, look up at verse, 15, or verse 18 of chapter 9. He says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Have you ever taught a, a Sunday school class or maybe junior church and you had one kid that was kind of trying to be the clown? One kid can destroy a lot of good, right? I mean, one kid can disrupt the whole crowd. And we know that's true. One person can destroy everybody around them. Now, if that principle is true, one sinner can destroy much good. Couldn't we make the application individually that one sin destroys much good in my life? What is that one sin that is in our life tonight that's causing everything that God is trying to do to be ruined? God doesn't call women to preach. He calls men to preach. As a result of that, we are stuck with male illustrations. Uh, men preach and they give male illustrations. They talk about sports and they talk about auto mechanics and we use hunting and fishing to illustrate truth in God's Word. If women were preachers, it would be a lot different. I'm not sure what the illustrations would be about. Um, washing clothes, um, Lipstick? I mean, I really don't know how it would all come out. But it's interesting, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul was not married, so I'm not sure where this came from. It kind of comes out of the blue. Maybe it comes because he wasn't married, but he uses a, a feminine illustration, if you please. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now, I don't know a thing about baking bread. I, I, I've never baked bread. My mother did never, never bake bread. I, I, I wouldn't know what ingredients go into making bread. I, I, I would assume flour. Am I right so far? I got one. Okay. Probably salt, maybe. I, I think there's probably some salt in there. That's about all I know. I, I, I really don't know what goes into the formula for making bread. But I know this, as Paul did, that among all those ingredients in the bread, you must put a little pinch of yeast or leaven. And that yeast, though it be just a pinch, is so powerful, so evasive, that it spreads through the entire loaf. So that when you put heat under that, that mixture, that leaven, that yeast, is what causes the bread to rise. It'd be kind of weird if you looked at your loaf of bread and only half of it rose. You know? But leaven has that power within it to saturate everything so the entire loaf rises. And Paul uses that illustration to describe the same thing Solomon was describing here. It doesn't take a lot of sin to ruin what God's doing. Just one dead fly. One pinch of yeast permeates everything in our life. So we see the sacredness of the fragrance, the stench of dead flies, but 
how does this happen? I mean, here we are. We're, we're in church. We're, we're here on a Tuesday night. Most people don't go to church on Tuesday night. How in the world does the devil slip dead flies into our lives? And we're not out there tonight carousing around and looking for sin. We're, we're not out there saying, hey, sin, come get me. You know, devil, have at me. No, we're trying to protect ourselves and we're trying to do our best. And we're in church because of that, trying to raise our families right. How does the devil slip in dead flies? Well, let's see thirdly, the source of failure. It starts with a cold heart. Look at verse number two. He says, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Now, if you're right-handed, would you raise your right hand? Just raise it near. If you're right-handed, okay? I think, the, I think the right-handed people have it. How many of you are left-handed? Raise your left hand. Oh, wow, pastor's left-handed. Left-handed, a few left-handers. Now, God is not preaching against left-handed people here, but what God is saying is we all have a dominant hand and we have a weak hand. Now, you wouldn't have to ask someone if they're right-handed or left-handed. You just observe them, and you could tell that, right? If, if you're taking notes right now, this lady right here is taking some notes. She's got a pen in her right hand. So I could assume that she's right-handed, right? Because most of us write with our dominant hand. Unless we break our arm or something, uh, we write with our dominant hand. Uh, if you watch someone eat, they, well, some of you eat with both hands, but, but most people, you know, they hold the fork in their dominant hand, right? Now, God says a wise man keeps his heart in his dominant hand, but a fool keeps his heart in his weak hand. The word heart is mentioned 812 times in the Bible. Your heart is very important, not just physically to keep pumping blood through your body, but your spiritual heart is very important because as you think in your heart, so are you. In other words, whatever's in your heart tonight is what you really are and is certainly what you're going to become. So God says, keep your heart with all diligence. In other words, guard your heart because out of it are the issues of life. We often say at the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And when our heart gets cold, when our heart gets callous, when our heart gets indifferent toward the things of God, this process of dead flies has begun. I played some football in high school and college, and, but I never got to touch the ball. I was not a skill player in football. I wasn't a quarterback, wasn't a receiver, wasn't a running back. I didn't get to touch the ball. But I remember in those football practices, as we were over on one side of the field working on our, our drills and our skills, the coaches over on the other side of the field who were working with the skilled players, they were screaming their lungs out, telling those guys to protect the ball, right? In other words, the quarterbacks and the center, they had to come out half hour before practice, before it even started, and work on the exchange. You know, just getting the exchange right. And we went to shotgun formation, they had to work even more. Because if you're going to fumble the ball before we run the play, why should I block? Right? You've got to protect the ball. 
Those running backs, man, they worked on their timing, their, their steps. They had to get their hands positioned just right to receive those handoffs and protect that ball. The receivers had to look that ball in with their eyes, and once they caught it, put it away. Put one end of that football in the crux of your elbow, cover the other end of that football, and if somebody comes to attack you, make sure you cover it up. Why? Because we're over on the other side of the field working on jerking it loose. I mean, we're over there working on punching it out and stripping it out. Because without the ball, you can't win in football. You know, some of you have your heart in your weak hand. And the devil every day comes along and tries to punch your heart loose from God. He tries to strip away your heart from the things of God. And if you're not carefully protecting your heart, this process of dead flies begins. It starts with a cold heart. But that cold heart leads to a corrupt speech. Look at verse 3. He says, Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he's a fool. You don't have to listen to a person talk very long before, before knowing if they're wise or foolish. You know why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So whatever's in your heart is who you really are. And whatever's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. What comes out of your mouth? You ever say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. Well, you didn't mean to say it, but you said it because it was in your heart. Oh, I was a slip of the tongue. No, it wasn't a slip of the tongue. It was a slip of the heart. You see, a cold heart leads to a corrupt speech. I, I tell you, there's a lot of words being used today that we need to really think about. I, uh, I hear this phrase, oh my God. Not just out in the world, I hear it in church. Of course, if we text, we just put OMG. That makes it okay. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine according to godliness, he's proud knowing nothing. So Paul says our words ought to be characterized by the words of Jesus or words that are according to the doctrine of godliness. Okay, so if Jesus Christ were to walk through that door right now in a physical body, if he were to just walk through this door and he, and he, and he looked at us, do you think he'd say, oh, my God? I don't think so. So why would we ever use it? Our words are to be words that reflect the heart of the Lord Jesus or the doctrine according to godliness. You don't need a Bible to convict you about words like gosh or golly or gee. Just get a dictionary. You look them up. Those words are euphemisms for God's name, Jesus' name. I'm not going to mention these words tonight because of the children here, but there are words that are used in our culture today that have double meanings. In other words, it's kind of like okay swearing. You know, we, we can use certain words because it's not the real word, but it's, it's what we mean, but it's, it's not the real word. You need to be careful about that. A corrupt speech. How's your speech? Do you know that one day we're going to give an account of every idle word which man shall speak? He shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. 
You ever heard somebody say, how'd you hear about that? And they say, oh, little birdie told me. You ever heard that phrase? Oh, little birdie told me. Did you know that came from the Bible? It's in the same book of Ecclesiastes. Curse not the king, nor not in thy thought. Curse not the king in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry thy voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. God has some little birdies that are listening to you. In fact, everything in this world that he created, according to Psalm 119, is his servant, and he can make his servants talk. We need to be careful about our speech. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. That'd be a pretty good prayer to pray every morning. Lord, guard my heart and guard my words. It starts with a cold heart. It leads to a corrupt speech, but then it, 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 it progresses to cowardly living. Look at the next verse, verse 4. He says, if the spirit of the ruler rises up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. We live at a time today, in America at least, where we can be intimidated very quickly as Christians. We're, we're not in the majority, in case you haven't noticed. Um, and, and it's easy today to feel intimidated by those maybe who are over us in some authority way, such as government or the workplace or, uh, you know, even in society, uh, we, we, we might think, well, I better not do that or yeah, I might lose my job or I better not say anything to those people. They may get mad or I, I, I got to be careful about witnessing to people today because that's kind of, you know, taboo and I got to be careful. And, and what happens is we become cowardly in our living. Ephesians 6, read that passage about the armor of God and just count how many times God just says stand. Just stand. Stand. In other words, have courage. Stand up for what you know is right. Stand up for what you believe. It's not against the law to, to carry your Bible. It's not against the law to pray. It's not against the law to witness. Now, people want us to think it is. Oh, you can't talk about that. You can't say that. You can't do that. Listen, uh, we need to have boldness. We need to have courage. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Cowardly living. Several years ago, I was preaching in a church in, in Northern California, and and uh, the pastor on Sunday night, he said, Brother Gatch, I didn't know if you knew this or not, but we have a Christian school. And he said, I was wondering if, if you'd be willing to preach in our Christian school chapel each day. I said, Pastor, I'd love to. I'd be happy to. I said, what time is chapel? He said, 10 o'clock. And he said, well, we have an hour. And he said, uh, you, you can, you can, we, we will have all the kids in there from first grade, kindergarten, all the way up to high school. And he said, just have at them, you know, have a good time. And I said, man, I'll be glad to. And, uh, but I'd flown to the meeting, and so I, 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 he said, uh, tell you what, you're just five minutes away. The hotel's just five minutes away. I'll pick you up at 945 and bring you over. You can preach, and then I'll take you right back. I said, that'll be great. I'll be ready. I'll, I'll, I'll be down in the lobby about 940. I'll be ready to go. So the next morning, uh, I... Uh, went through my routines, you know, but about 9.40, I was dressed. I had my, my coat and tie on. I had my Bible, had my message, and, and uh, I thought I better get down to that lobby because pastor will be here in five minutes. 
And uh, so I, I didn't need to take anything else with me. I just needed my Bible. And, and so I grabbed my Bible and I went out the door. I was on the seventh floor of that particular hotel. I went down the hallway to the elevator and I pushed the button. And after a few seconds or moments, the door opened and I got on. And the elevator door closed and started down. It went down three floors, but at floor number four, it stopped and the doors opened. And a businessman dressed in a suit, very much like I was dressed, he, he stepped on the elevator. Now, I don't know how many elevators you've been in in your life. I've been in a few. But people don't talk in an elevator. You don't, you don't, it's just, you don't talk to people in an elevator, right? I mean, what happens is somebody gets on the elevator, you kind of, you acknowledge them, you kind of go, hey. Or morning, you know, something like that. But you don't, you don't, how are you? You don't, you don't do that, you know. It's just too close. It's just, so he got on and I, I kind of went, hey. And when you get on the elevator, everybody turns around, faces the door and watches the lights. <laughs> you know, make sure they're blinking. And so, so I got on, he got on, and, and the thing starts down. And I'm standing there with my Bible in my hand like this. And I could, I could feel him looking at me. You ever, you ever had somebody, you could just sense they were looking at you? You could feel their eyes. And, and I hate that. I always think, did I forget to put something on? You know? and, and so uh, uh, pretty soon he spoke. And he, we're going down. He said, uh, is that a Bible? I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, it is. He said, I thought only sissies carried Bibles. I said, well, here, you carry it. I no more than said that, and the door opened, and he jetted out of there. I mean, just boom, he's gone. And I, I'm laughing, and I'm thinking, hey, John, that was a good one. Remember that one. You know, write that down. That was good. You know, boy, you set him straight. So, so I, I kind of chuckled to myself, and the pastor picked me up. I didn't say anything about it. I didn't tell anybody about it. I, I just kind of kept it to myself to humor myself throughout the day. Well, the next morning, you know, I get up, I go through my routines, and 9.40, I'm thinking, well, I better get going here. And so I grab my Bible, headed down the hallway to the elevator, push the button, it opened, I get on, the door closes, it starts moving, and it stops on the fourth floor. Now, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. <laughs> the door opened, and a different businessman gets on the elevator. This guy's really short. And he's got a three-piece suit on, a vest, the whole nine yards, and he's carrying a briefcase. And he gets on the elevator, same thing, you know, hey. You know, and we turn around, and the door closes, and we start going down. And I'm standing there, and all of a sudden he says, is that a Bible? And I thought, here we go again. <laughs> Remember the line, you know. I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, it is. He looked around as if there was somebody else in there. He's looking around, he goes, I said, you do? He said, yeah. I said, well, did you read it this morning? He said, I did. I said, well, good for you. And the door opened, he went out. And I thought, well, that was boring. <laughs> you know, the atheist guy was a lot more fun than that guy. I mean, you know. Well, the pastor wasn't there yet, and there was a little, there was a little stand there where he could buy newspaper and coffee and things like that. And I thought, I'm going to grab a newspaper and read later. And so I I went over and I picked up a, a newspaper and 
there were three or four guys in front of me to buy something, and I'm standing in line there kind of looking at the front page, and all of a sudden I feel a hand on my shoulder. And I turn around, here's a little short guy with the briefcase. And standing next to him is this guy that's 6'9". He's huge. He's in a suit carrying a briefcase. Huge guy. And the little short guy goes, hey, I wanted you to meet my boss. He makes fun of me for being a Christian. (laughs) Nice to meet you, sir. He spat on my hand and cursed and walked off. You know, I have thought about that a lot. I don't know who that little guy was. I don't know if his pastor knew that he carries his Bible on the road when he travels. I don't know if his pastor or wife knows that he witnesses to his boss. At the risk of maybe losing his job or certainly at the risk of being cursed out. But isn't that great? I mean, here's a guy, nobody would know or maybe care if he never took his Bible on the road with him or never read it or or never witnessed anybody. Who would know? He could go to church on Sunday as if everything was fine. But friends, we need some people that will have courage. We need some people that that will not cower and shrink away from the world just because the world seems bigger or stronger or or more loud about what they believe. This, This process of dead flies, it starts with a cold heart. It leads to a corrupt speech. It leads to cowardly living. And finally, it ends with championing sin. Look at verse 5. Or I'm sorry, verse 6. Folly, there's that word again, folly is set in great dignity. Wow. That could be the headline of the paper tomorrow. Folly is set in great dignity. I, I, don't, I don't know if this, if this would surprise you or not. I, I, um, I, w- I went to public school. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. My, my dad's in heaven today was the greatest Christian I knew. Um, just a farmer, uh, lightly educated, but a man that loved the Lord and had a passion for what was right and church and all those things that we would believe in. He was a godly man. My mother's 93 years old, will be 93 next month. She has been a godly Christian all those years. She's completely demented now. She doesn't know who I am. But, but she has her Bible there in her room, and she opens it every day. She, she can't read it, but it's just a habit. I grew up in a very strong Christian home, but I wasn't completely shielded from the world because I went to a public school. I played three sports in high school, football, basketball, and ran track. I grew up 40 miles from Madison, Wisconsin. It was known as Mad Town then. It's still known as Mad Town today. It was a place where all my friends went on the weekends to drink, get their dope, and, and uh, mess with girls and all that kind of thing. And they'd come back and talk about it in the locker rooms. I had, I had been exposed to my share of, of sinful things. I had a sociology teacher in high school that uh, read a Playboy magazine to us almost every day. He put it in a manila folder so we couldn't see what it was, but we knew. He, he, he told us. But he, he kept it hidden because it was against the rules. But So I was exposed to some things. 
But when I went to college in 1970, I know that's back in the Old Testament, but <laughs> when I went to college in 1970, I didn't know what a homosexual was. I don't know if I'd ever heard the word. I, I know I didn't hear the word gay. That wasn't used at that time at all. I, I had no idea. If you, if you would have said that word, I, I would not have known what you were talking about. Now, homosexuality is not a new sin. You can find it in the book of Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah was filled with it. Every man in Sodom was a homosexual. That's what the Bible says. So it's new, but there was a time when the things that were sin were not spoken of in, in public. The Bible commands that. There's things that we're not to speak of publicly that are sinful. It's why I'm hesitating a little bit tonight because of the children in the room of what, what I'm saying. Now, today, children better know what one is. You, you got to teach your children about this stuff. Or they may fall prey to it. Today, that sin, along with a lot of others, is, is paraded. It's protected. It's promoted as the better lifestyle. See, now, we, we, we could spend an hour talking about sins like that in our culture. I'm not going to do that. What I want to focus on is which sin are we protecting in our life? Because while we would be adamant about certain sins out there in public, what, what's the sin that we're guarding? What's the sin that we're saying, Lord, you can have all this, 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 and this, but you're not getting this. I, I'm keeping this one. I'm protecting this one. This one's my favorite. This one is my pet sin, and I'm not letting go of it. And we begin to champion that sin in our life. But remember, it only takes one dead fly to cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. And today in our culture, unfortunately, a lot of people who know Christ as Savior are sending forth a savor that is negative because we've allowed dead flies into our life. It doesn't take much. When Eric, my youngest son, was 15, he was pretty excited that year because he had been traveling with me during the summer. I'd go and revive work in the summer and travel most of the summer weeks. And, and uh, he started traveling with me when he was about 10 or so in the summertime and loved it. And, and, uh, but the, his 15th year, that was, that was a special summer because he had his driver's permit. And he said, Dad, I can help you drive. I said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> but but he, Eric was a good driver. And, and as the summer wore on, he was driving more and more. And I was really appreciating the fact that we could, we could make some pretty good time with two drivers, you know. Well... We finished a meeting on a Friday night in Houston, Texas. And Sunday morning, just Sunday morning, we were preaching. I was going to a camp on Monday, but Sunday morning, we were scheduled to preach uh, the Sunday morning services, Sunday school and Sunday morning, in a, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Well, that's a pretty good hike. So we got up early Saturday morning and started driving. But with two of us, we're trading off every few hours, and we're making good time and uh, having a good time together. We got up to Columbia, 
at about 10 o'clock Saturday night. The church had arranged. I'd never been to the church before. I'd never met the pastor before. But he had arranged for us to stay with one of the families in the church, and they were so gracious. They stayed up. We, we knocked on the door kind of hesitantly, like, are they still up? And, and uh, they welcomed us in, and they said, look, we know you're tired, and you've been traveling all day. We've got two bedrooms upstairs. Just go up the stairs. There's two bedrooms. There's a bathroom. Just each of you take one, and, and, and it's all yours. Well, we were thankful. They didn't want a fellowship, you know, till 12 o'clock. We were tired, and, and so we went up the stairs. Eric chose one room. I chose the other. And we put a couple things in order, and, and uh, within a few minutes, I plopped in that bed, and I'm telling you, within about five seconds, I was out. I was, I was gone. And I, I can tell myself to go to sleep, and I can go to sleep almost anywhere. And uh, so I, I laid in that bed, and I, w- I went to sleep just like that, and I slept solidly for 30 minutes. <laughs> 30 minutes later, I was awakened to just kind of a, 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 a dull pain in my side. And uh, it wasn't a big deal, but it, it had woken me up. And so that was bothersome. And I, 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 I said, Lord, I don't need this tonight. I got to preach tomorrow morning. And uh, I, don't, I don't need to be up tonight dealing with something. I said, take this away. And I laid there, but it, 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 it didn't go away. In fact, it, it seemed to be increasing. About an hour later, I, I got out of the bed. I went down the hallway quietly to the bathroom and and I tried to splash some water in my face and just tried to move around a little bit, hoping that I could alleviate this discomfort and just didn't work. I went back, tried to lay in a different position, and that didn't work. Finally got up and decided, well, I might as well pray. You know, <laughs> Lord, maybe has me up for a reason, so I'll, I'll kneel here and pray. And I found some comfort in just kneeling. It seemed like that position helped a little bit. And I prayed for a while, but I couldn't, lick, I couldn't get rid of this thing. Finally, about 12.30, I couldn't get up. I couldn't get off the floor. The pain was becoming intense. About 1 o'clock, I crawled down the hallway to Eric's room, and I woke him up. I said, son, I don't know what's going on, but i got to get to a hospital. I said, you're going to have to get dressed and get me to a hospital. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but I think I'm dying. (laughs) And so I said, no, let's not wake these people up. Let's be quiet. So we got dressed as best we could. He helped me get dressed, and he drug me down the stairs, and I crawled out to the car. I, I, I had tears in my eyes. I, could, I couldn't even see I was in such pain. I, I had never experienced pain like this in my life. And Eric said, Dad, where's the hospital? I said, son, I have no idea. Just look for a blue sign with an H on it. Just start driving, and, and we'll see one. And we started driving. We drove around for about an hour, and we finally found a, a, a hospital sign. And we followed it. We got to the ER about 2, 2.30 in the morning. Now, if you've ever been to ER at 2.30 in the morning, everybody's there. <laughs> Everybody that's dying is there. And they're all worse than you are. <laughs> you know, I was feeling sorry for people in there, though I knew I was dying. And, and so, of course, I'm in a different state. My insurance it doesn't work here. And I said, don't, I don't care. Just get me some help. I mean, I'm dying. Well, they got me in the back after they dealt with some others in front of me. Finally got me in the back, and they gave me something to take some of the pain, and it did help a little bit. I'm laying there, and I'm saying, Lord, you know, it's 4 o'clock. i got to preach at 9.30. Come on, get me out of here, you know. <laughs> Finally, 5 a.m., the doctor walks in. They had taken some x-rays, and he walks in. He says, textbook case, textbook case. I said, what, what? He said, you have a kidney stone. Well, I'd never had a kidney stone. 
I have some friends that have had kidney stones, and they always told me it was like having a baby. It was like a woman having a baby, the same kind of pain. I thought, oh, my, I'm having a baby, and i got to preach in three hours. This, this is not good. <laughs> and I said, what are we going to do? He said, ah, we'll, we'll fill you up with morphine. We'll get you a prescription, get you some morphine, kill the pain. He said, you just got to wait it out. Just drink a lot of water, and it'll pass. It'll pass in time. Just got to wait it out. The morphine will help, and just take that, and... And uh, I'll give you a little filter. Try to catch it when it comes through so we can, you know, if we can catch it, then we can investigate it, see what caused it. I said, well, you know, he gives me this filter thing. I said, well, what am I looking for? He said, well, according to the x-ray, it's about the size of a grain of sand. I'm thinking, I'm about to have the world's smallest midget. (laughs) A grain of sand. We went and got the morphine, and I took it, and by 9 o'clock, I was at the church really good. I mean, I felt great, and uh, I taught Sunday school. I felt just great, and I never told the pastor. I never told anybody. Eric knew. He's standing there thinking, what is he doing? And, uh, and I, I preached well, and I, then I went and stood by Eric during the song service for this church service, and we're singing the first congregational hymn. I'm holding the book, and Eric's singing with me, and all of a sudden, I felt like somebody had doused Gatorade over me, like after a game. Just like, you know, the coaches, they douse them with Gatorade. That's what it felt like. It just felt like, just went through me. And I thought, hey, I think I just passed that thing. And so I preached. And afterwards, I tried to find that grain of sand. I never found it. Never found it. I guess it was too small for the filter. Went right through. You know, I learned something. I never saw that little thing, whatever it was. But that little thing put me on my face. And what a reminder that is about the dead flies that the devil can slip into our life if we're not careful. We think, ah, it's not a big deal. Ah, it won't really matter. Nobody will know about it. But that one dead fly can send forth a stinking savor in that substance that God has designed to be used in your life for you to go out and have a testimony for Jesus Christ in this wicked world. What's the dead fly tonight? 